Ray? Yes. You know the lovely man who she said on your show? Yes, Michael Webster. Yeah, the lovely hunky spunky, hunky spunky one, the hunky spunk. He's wealthy in the hunky and the spunky stakes. Oh, he's hunky and spunky. Um, do you, you know, you've got that Janet Street Porter mask. Yes, the, his band Bait are using masks of Janet Street Porter to promote their musical wares. Okay. Yes. Do you think if I wore that mask, that the, the lovely marker would let me just find out just how hunky and spunky he really is? Janet Street Porter is the key to many a man's heart, and Michael Webster has a big heart. Okay, Dookie. Well, I'm going to finish me singing here, and I'm going to go see if I can find the lovely hunky spunky marker. Oh, and I'm taking your Janet Street Porter mask with me. Considering the purpose... Go on, then. Okay, then. It is an emergency. Sound of siren so that everyone's up to speed. The saying a drill, it's a matter of urgency. So let's run it on home. Bam, 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 bam. Studio Sylvia Silversmith. Hello, everyone. And Marsha McDonald. Yep, yeah, peeps, what up? You sound slightly more cheery than you did on the last instalment of the Dookie Radio Show, but only slightly. Oh, was I grumpy? A little bit. Oh, was I? You were suffering from caffeine withdrawal. Oh, yeah, that's right. Dookie. Yes. I need a vacation. Don't we all? But, you know, what are you going to do? <sighs> I'm, I'm, less, I'm less grumpy. I'm a little less grumpy. That's good news. Syl- Sylph's kind of taken over on the on the grumpy side. So she's up, you're down. Yeah. You're up, she's down. Yeah. Dookie, I'm missing the tour. The Tour de France was an amazing thing. I really hate sports, but I do love the tour very muchly. I don't know why. It's just human endeavor. There are other cycling events that could surely whet your appetite. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about the tour. There's just those three weeks that just give me a respite from life. I do miss it. And well done to Chris Froome, eh? Well done to Froome. And, you know, well done to... I think well done to all of them. I really like Scabo Grimai. It's a solid name. Yes, it's a great name. He's the uh, he's the Ethiopian um, mm. cyclist, Skabu Gramai. You know, it's people like that that aren't in the in the you know that you don't see in the headlines and stuff. That I just think you know they're badasses because they're not getting all the airtime and everything, and they're still cycling their asses up those Alps. You're not wrong. I like the one chap who I believe he's Belgian and he has never eaten a bagel. Oh, yes. Nor does he believe that mauve exists as a colour or a concept. I love that guy. I can't remember his name. It was something like Kierkegaard, but Mm. not Kierkegaard, obviously. Indeed. But a philosopher on the bicycle in his own special way. Isn't it? Actually, I think it was Skabu Grimai. 
Oh. I don't want to mispronounce anyone's name. Oh, no, with a name that solid, you don't want to get anything wrong. It's a wrong. solid name, and they're a bunch of solid bikers, and I miss seeing them all haul their skinny little asses up the Alps. But Dookie. Yes. Your guest this week. Mm. I really love his music. Me like, too. Per- personally, love his music. I'm a huge baddies fan. I love Bait, and I love Asylums. And he has been in all three bands, two of which are going from strength to strength, respectively. Well, I really like that Irene deciphered his lyrics for the the chorus of Battleships because I really, really love that song and I really love the lyrics. And I just couldn't work out those chorus lyrics and now I can and now I love the song even more, if that was possible. Yeah, tell me about it. In my own head, I thought it was about slipstreams and ten speeds. There was stuff online that somebody's you know, did all the lyrics, but they couldn't decipher the, the chorus and they got it very wrong. I, just I mean, like- I'm sure you could do a whole show on, you know, what people think the lyrics were, but what they actually were. Well, like Guns N' Roses, Paradise City. I thought it was when I first heard it, take me down to the very last city. I thought it was about this post-apocalyptic world. Perth, Australia, the only city mm. still surviving after the bombs had done their damage. Isn't it funny what the brain can... Just You can just make up your own stuff and just have this whole picture in your head. I've just realised something. Yes. We were talking about the Tour de France yes. and the fact that you miss it. Yes. And over the years of listening and enjoying the song Battleships by Baddies, you know, I, again, heard Slipstream and Ten Speeds. Yes. Maybe I thought it was about the Tour de France. Possibly. I can see where you might get that, Dookie. But it's not. And Irene got the lyrics right. Irene sounds like she's gone off to Essex to find the lovely Michael Webster to have her wicked, wicked way with him, if he if he is so permitting. Well, indeed. All I know is that I'm one Janet Street Porter mask down. You know, I walked into your studio and I saw that mask and it kind of like freaked the shit out of me. I mean, genuinely. Janet does have that effect on people. Yeah, I don't really know who she is, but that, that mask is kind of freaky. I think it's freaky because it's eyeless. True. But then when you wear it, your own beautiful eyes can fill the void where Janet's missing eyes should be. I find her irritating as a person, but I also find her quite endearing as well. So I have to hold those two separate opinions in my head at the same time, which I find a little bit difficult. But one of the reasons I find her endearing is because in the 60s, she had all these drugs. As you do. And she decided to keep them safe. So she put them in an envelope. As one does. And wrote drugs on the envelope Mm. and then put them in a drawer. And then her house got raided because they knew that they I don't think she was a big druggie but I think she hung out with a lot of people who liked their drugs so when they got she got raided the police obviously had a perfectly easy time finding where the drugs were because I just love that story and it just endears me to her it's strangely considerate to the the old bill to do that isn't it I think if people don't like Marcia dear Marcia you're I don't you know you could look up who she is I don't even know what she's famous for I guess she's just famous for being a talking head, right? Absolutely. She's famous for being Janet Street Porter. Which is ironic because she does have quite a braying voice. Janet Street Porter. Yeah, like that. So I think people find her irritating or some people might love her. And I I kind of feel like both. All I know is that the track that Bates have that features Janet Street Porter... It's bloody good. It's really good. I love their music. And and we're kind of rushing through this introduction because you had lots of jitty-jatty with the Mr. 
Michael Webster. We chatted for hours and this has been one of the most difficult interviews to edit for all the right reasons. I mm-hmm. wanted to keep everything, but it would have turned into a four-parter. Well, isn't that just a good sign? Here, here. You guys had a good time together. And so we're keeping this quick, aren't we? We certainly are. We're giving it, uh, I got to learn how to shut my hole so that we don't <laughs> go on too much. Let's get you some caffeine. Yeah, I'll go have some more caffeine. And Sylvia, why yes. are you a bit down? I am missing the, I, I'm, I'm with Marcia. I need a vacation, Dookie. Oh, fair I've enough. been working really hard and I just need, I'm looking forward to all of us going off to the festival. Bring it on. Edinburgh Festival, there will be special Dookie radio show episodes. Yes, so bring it on. But firstly, bring on your wonderful interview for Mr. Hunky Spunky, as Irene is calling him. Here's Michael Webster. Hello, my name is Michael Webster and my favourite word is pillock. Pillock is one of those words where you could use it on EastEnders as a pre-watershed insult along with toe rag. Well, I love the way it's written. I think it looks great. And I spell it P-I-L-L-O-C-K. And I love the way it's written. I love the way it looks. And I love the way it sounds. And I love the fact that it's quite a, a kind of harmless kind of cuss if you know what i mean if you call someone a pillock they're probably not going to be that offended if you called someone a cunt or something they're not going to say cunt on albert square no no oh you pillock yeah i think you know it's it's in the like pratt is another good one Mm. you know you can get you can get in that but then you wouldn't imagine an american saying either of those words like shut up you pillark you know i mean (laughs) It just doesn't. It don't. It don't work that way. You're but, such a prat, Michael. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it, it doesn't work. It, but but it's the, a uniquely British word. Yeah, and, and that's, so that's another reason that I love it as well. And I, I, I'm very, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like Mister. I'm so proud to be British, but mm. you know, I do like the fact that I am from from Britain. Mm. After each gig that I've seen you do in the baddies days. I love the fact that you would tell the audience, you know, we are the baddies and we are from South End. Yeah. It's, it gives location and civic pride and a good kind of full stop to the evening's entertainment. It does, yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, but I, to be honest, I got a lot of that from two front men. One was Speedo from the Rocket from the Crypt mm. and one was from um, Howlin Pele. Almsqvist, is that his name from the Hives? Oh, from the Hives. Oh, the guy from the Hives. Oh, I love the Hives. And I thought they were two great front men. And, and what I found about them is that they were very proud to be on the stage and proud from where they come from. So they come on straight away, like, you know, we're rocking from the crib from San Diego or something like mm. that, you know. And I thought, well, you get, you're just getting down to it. Those are American style bands, they're very good front men, very good showmen. And Baddies Live was a show, you know, it was it was a bit like that. And Affirmative, it was absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I love the fact that at your final gig, which I was at in South End, early December 2012, yeah. time flies. I wasn't sure if you were going to do it, and you did, you know, say, you know, in South End, yeah, we are baddies from South End, yeah, and that was a really emotional gig and a good place to start, starting where baddies finished, yeah. I was in a band called Top Buzzer, and earlier that year we played with you in. Southampton. The Joiners. At the Joiners. It It was that venue, I'm sure it was. And at the time I detected a little bit of, not negativity, but a bit of sadness about your state of affairs in terms of being in a band. Yeah. I met you at shows that you did in in London in previous years, but I'm not sure whether or not it was just an issue of 
where you were headspace wise or the fact that we were sharing a bill but i remember you asking certain questions about the happiness levels that, that i was having on the road and i mean you were lovely completely affable yeah but i did detect a bit of <laughs> darkness um yeah, I mean, there, there was that that time. I mean, it would have been around. I think that was around the time when we were doing Build then the second album. Mm. So we kind of by that point we'd we'd gone from doing a, a hell of a lot of touring all around Europe and and even over into Japan and Australia and, and all that stuff that we were so proud to go and do, and it's a great experience to losing our agent, losing our manager, and kind of everybody in between really mm. and so the only people we had we could trust were ourselves um and and we weren't really getting that many gigs and it was kind of like it was almost like we we knew it was kind of we knew we had to really be strong to to try and like fight against the you know the the current really because you know the chips were stacked against us massively mm. and um i think it, it you can't help but let if you let your guard down it does kind of give you a bit of a kick in the bollocks every now and again and and that's kind of we were feeling like that at the time like for sure um from a timeline point of view baddie's farewell show december 2012 when did build your second and final album come out roughly the release date oh you know what it definitely came out that year and it came out i thought it came out in like early in the year but i might be wrong it might that have feels been... about right i seem to remember you were March just something. on the verge of promoting talk to me germany yeah um around that time How soon before that final gig did you collectively agree to call it a day? I think it was it was a couple of months before, definitely. Was um, there a specific moment? I mean, you'd mentioned the agent had gone, management had gone. Yeah. Well, literally that very day, it all happened on one day. That mm. uh, They'd gone before we decided to do Build. And we literally had... I remember receiving these emails and my stomach was just like, that feeling when you've been dumped by someone, mm. you know, I just felt like, oh, a big change is happening and it's, and it's, I'm out of control. It's not in my, in my power to do anything about it. And literally we called like an emergency meeting and we went to the Alex, which is a place in South End. So it's really good craft beers on a Friday, three pound. Um, didn't do it then though, but we went, we went in, and we were just like, look, my thing was that I was, the band I was in before, we'd only ever did one album and then we split. Mm. And I was like, I can't do that again. I can't just do one and leave it there. Mm. I've got unfinished business. I need to do something. And we all agreed there and then that we were going to do the album. And we went forward and we did it. And it was really hard to do it, but we raised enough money through a pledge campaign and fans clearly wanted it. But when it came out, you know, it was, we didn't have an agent. It was really difficult for us to kind of, and that's, I guess, the time where we played together. Mm. Um, and I think I knew it would, even when we was recording it, I knew that it would be the last album that we did. 
I never really said it, but I think I knew it. And some of that did come through in the, some of the lyrics that was that that, that were there. Um, you know, we, we spoke before about it with the last track on the album, mm. Star Surfing. It's a really sad song. It certainly is. It, you know, it came on my shuffle the other day and, and I, I, I was like... Planet Earth is calling me. Yeah, it's calling me home. And, 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 and it was almost like, that's enough now. You know, you've, you've, you've had your time. You've had your sort of five minutes of minor fame and um, you better come down back down to reality. And that's how genuinely how I was feeling. Mm. Like... I didn't want to at all, you know. I wanted to to stay up there, and I wanted I wanted everything to be fine, but there was pressures, and and I just couldn't couldn't continue doing it. And so, against everything, we decided not to do it anymore, and that left me in quite a, quite a miserable place for a while, actually. I can imagine um, because I didn't know I didn't know what was next. You were saying off pod when we were talking about the end of Baddies that, and particularly the track Star Surfing, that you know, in going home and in leaving Baddies and that, that world that you were returning to reality, mm. what was reality for you? Reality was that I had spent my whole 20s and late teens actually in various bands I never went to university I never wanted to I never had anything I wanted to study other than I, I just wanted to play music and that was it um, and, and do it in my own way mm. which I am p- proud to say I, I've had great experience doing that and amazing time um, but what came with that was that whenever I needed it I had to just do what get work here and there and do bits and pieces so i never really had any kind of backup plan no kind of um like career that, that, that was in tandem with the music career it was it was that mm. shit or bust basically it was just like you know it's that or nothing and i found myself quite quickly on a building site Right. I seem to remember uh, the last gig being the 2nd of December. If mm. not, it was close to it. December, January. This is not a great time to be out and about on a building no, site. I mean, I, I, for, there's probably about 18 months with, it, within the, the, the baddies kind of chapter where I was able to, to make a living out of it full time. Mm. Got a publishing deal, got this. And I was like, brilliant. This is perfect. Living the dream. Living the dream. And then... But the rest of it, it was work here and there, temp jobs, you know, and I've, I've done a thousand of them like Forrest Gump. And um, so towards the end of it, I found myself on a building site and he's working for a friend. So I was already doing that by the time that last gig came around. And I didn't want to do the last gig. The boys wanted to do it. And I was very, I just sort of, I just said like, I don't know if it's right to do it. I, I just felt as though... It would be emotional, and it you could and look it was. you could look at it as a celebration, which it was as well. But I just thought, oh, I, because I didn't re- because I was reluctantly saying goodbye to it. I didn't want to. It's almost like you don't want to go to the funeral, you know. Mm. You know you must, yeah. but but you don't want to go. 
And when you've got to stand up there and sort of talk about it, although I didn't talk much, I think I said something towards the end of the second set, the build set. We did both, we did three sets that night actually. <laughs> and um, I kind of addressed it there. I kind of sort of said, you know, I'm proud of these boys and, and it's t- sort of time to move on. And it is, we, there is a video of that last set. And um, I watched it once and I just couldn't watch it again because I was just like, it, it is sad. And uh, yes, yeah, so the reality was, you know, I digress, but the reality was I was on a building site. I was, yeah, I felt like shit because I didn't know what I was doing. I learned how to use a few tools, but that was it. What sort of work were you doing? Pulling cables. Right. Pulling cables. That's it. So you went from <laughs> putting your leads into amplifiers and guitars and effects pedals to pulling cables on a building site. Pretty much it, yeah. Did you not want to have a farewell gig possibly and maybe subconsciously with a view of keeping things open-ended? I mean, I guess I guess so. I guess so. I mean, we could have always, we could, we could, you know, could have always still gone back to do it. And the thing is, is that I'm quite, um, quite a purist when it comes to bands. And I think that like, it's, it's not only about those people working together. I think it's about a time and a place. And, and, and I think that it, bad is connected to a degree at that time because it was, you know, culturally it was slightly different. You know, we had MTV2, which was a massive sort of thing, and that m- massively pushed us up. You know, live music was huge at a time. Indie was big, and we sort of tailed onto that kind of big surge of of um, UK indie bands, like, you know, the Future Heads and Maximo Park and Kaiser Chiefs and all those bands that we were kind of thrown in with, although I didn't agree we sounded like them. Um, so I think to do it now... Or to ever go back and do that again, would um I don't think it would work, and I don't think there'd be enough people that'd be interested. That's just me personally how I feel. Other, uh, it might it might be underground that everyone really wants to, mm. but but I'm quite sort of realistic about it. And the, my l- worst nightmare would be to to get the band back together, rehearse it all up, and then there's thirty people that turn up, and I'd just be like. Ending the baddies as a band at Chinnery's that night, it's the perfect full stop, the the perfect ending to to a band. I mean, that was a tremendous gig. Mm. Without a doubt, one of the best gigs I've been to. It's in my top five. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, because it was so emotional and you could tell that... This wasn't an easy decision for all of you, and you played every single note like it was your last gig. And yeah. I mean, I remember seeing you, you know, absolutely giving it your all vocally and seeing kind of veins coming out. And I've seen baddies a number of times, and I'm in no way trying to uh, hint at the fact that you never gave it your all. But this was to the point of you know, maybe even damaging yourself. I mean, were you hoarse the next day? It was. This wasn't a hundred percent. This was over a hundred percent. And I'm not one of those people that likes to use the slightly American. I'm going to put in a hundred and fifty-five percent for you. This was a man giving us all. You must have felt exhausted emotionally and physically mm. the next day. I mean, yeah, for sure. And I think it was just kind of a a way to to move on as well. You know, it was like I I did get a lot of anger out and um i i walked off stage and i broke down like for 
a minute. Mm. And then I was all right after that, but I had to get it out. But I, I, my body physically was shaking because it was just like, I felt as though it, it was a physical thing. It wasn't just emotional. It, it was just like, I'd spent all this time doing it and it had gone mm. within, you know, just just within a set, you know. And But at the same time, you got to, you know, look back with fond memories. But then I remember saying like straight after talking to people and they said, what are you going to do? And I just said, well, I'm, I'm still going to do something. I'm still going to do something. Mm. And I wanted to get that going ASAP, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And yeah, it was, it was, it, it was a, I don't know. It was, it was tough. It was that, that, that night was tough. And, um, but certainly the, the, um, it sort of changed that night. I did give it a little bit more. I did almost scream a lot more than, mm. than the, the night I, I, I did before. Um, and my voice broke up and you, you can sort of tell that, I mean, even my voice sounds different now to to what it did probably five years ago because I've been pretty much screaming ever since. Mm, mm. And, but I like, I feel as though I need to, it gets a lot out out of me when I do oh. it. And then hearing about you going on a building site, I, you know, I get it. You know, you needed to, you needed some time to think about what to do next. And obviously doing, you know, Baddies version two under another name was not going to be it. And so how long did it take in between that final gig and you picking up a guitar or any instrument for that matter? Um, I think I'd, like there was a weekend where, you know, I didn't want to pick it up at all. I kind of lost, lost my confidence, like, like big time, actually. I, 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 I didn't sing for a long time. Mm. I didn't, um... I picked up the guitar every now and again, but everything I, it was, it was just finding a, a, a I could just couldn't find the route. I just couldn't find what it is I was going to do. And, you know, technology had changed slightly as well. And that had a, a bit of an impact because when, when I was writing all the baddies stuff, all of the stuff would be, I would just do it all on my phone. Mm. And I think as a Christmas present, my mum bought me some Pro Tools stuff. Which oh. I asked her for. She didn't. My mum. She doesn't know about. I was going she was to just, say that's really switched <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, you know, this is it. This is it, son. Is a bit of Pro Tools. <laughs> that, that was what. Yeah. Uh, so I asked for that, and she bought. She and it was just a little Pro Tools Express thing, um, and it sat boxed in my spare room for about eight months. I didn't even open right. the box. Didn't even open it. Didn't have the mm. guts to even try. Mm. Because it was like, oh, because I felt burnt out. I felt as though I'd, because I'd been in a lot of other bands before Baddies as well, mm. you know, so I, and to, and doing it to, you know, we, first band I was in, in Gerica, we, you know, we tore in loads and we signed Sanctuary and all that stuff. So I was bass player in that and then that split and, and then fronted Baddies and then, and then that split as well. And I was like... I always said I would never do anything else initially when I was when Baddies was going well if this stops I'm not doing anything else um, but you quickly realise that that is who you are and you can't live without it mm-hmm. but when you can't live without it but you don't know which way to go then you start to feel a bit sad so the Pro Tools is just was boxed up in my room 
but I had to learn how to use it. And that was, you just got to get, so it's even more like, you've got to conjure up more kind of enthusiasm to do it, even though you're feeling like shit. Mm, mm. So it was difficult for me to do it. And that's why it sat there for so long. But in the end, yeah, I got my head around it. And it was a new way of writing for me. Um, so it kind of, I could over, overlap stuff better. I could put half decent beats in. And, it, and, and, and that, I think that's where... I started to form ideas about what where I could go with it, and mm. there was some abs. I wrote some absolute load of old bollocks in in between. Some of it is fucking awful, and then I started to doubt myself and think, "Fuck, was it all them and not me?" And you know, and what would I do? What would what would Mike from Baddies do? And it's like you're not Mike from Baddies anymore. You're Mike, and you've got to do what you think's right. And discovering who the non-baddies Mike could be yeah. was not going to happen overnight. And it wasn't no. going to happen immediately after opening up the the box of Pro Tools goodness. It, yeah, no, it, it, it certainly wasn't. And I'd, it was, yeah, it was genuinely like the worst time in my life. You know, like I, I had a fucking awful time. And it's, you know... I don't know. It, it just it took me time to kind of get my head around where we're going to go, and I needed inspiration. I needed inspiration from someone, um, and that came from working with Luke, Luke Branch, Luke Branch, who is the lead singer of Asylums, as well as being the bass player of Bait, two yeah. bands who are working in tandem with with each other. Yeah. And you and Luke both are working within Cool Thing Records yeah, as well, cool thing, which yeah. if you have your webcam on, you'll be able to see that uh, Mr. Webster is sporting <laughs> a very smart Cool Thing Records shirt. And how did that happen? How did that come about? And from a timeline point of view, when did you first meet Luke or have you always known him? I've known Luke for quite a long time, but not closely we were in rival bands uh, when I was before Baddies. We was in like rival bands. I've known him since the school days. Mm. So w we went to rival schools as well. And so I've, and I've always admired like him as a songwriter and that kind of stuff. And anyway, he was in a, after Baddies, he was in a similar position to me. We'd meet up every now and again and we'd be like, ask what's going on, you know, and kind of almost, compare stories of what's going on and Battle kind of scars and wounds exactly yeah like, yeah emotional and physical yeah yeah for sure you mm. know and um and then he just phoned me up one day and he just said look i'm gonna do something new would you consider playing some bass for me i wasn't doing nothing at the time mm. i was writing a few little tunes here and there showing him some crap i'd come up with but nothing that i was really that proud of you know and he just and i just said yeah let's do it Let's do it. And so, but picking up the bass again from, because I was initially bass player, then mm. then guitar, vocals, and then back to bass again. I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't didn't know, well, on, in terms of being on stage. So from really like being a front man that would like to get sort of in, the, in your face and stuff, to, to sort of standing back and kind of being reserved again, I, I, it was screwing my head like big time. I can imagine. 
but we did it. We, we we started we started working together, and what I realized very quickly is that Luke was really. It was really fun to work with. There was all the negativity that that had become that consumed all of us in baddies like that the industry had kind of given us and, and the kind of you know feeling hard done by and and all the those hot those awful feelings that you know no one should have bitterness is not a good look no it's not and it's not and, a good feeling no and mm. it's I, I felt that that just wasn't there with luke and he brought something to me that was like right he knew I wanted to do something as well and we started doing Asylum stuff and it was sounding really good very different to stuff I'd done before and actually quite a bit different to what Asylum's became but it was quite good and we both had something to offer each other and then I he sort of said well look well you might not want to but maybe I'll play bass for you if you want and we just we used to just do these sessions where I'd I'd set the Pro Tools up I'd learn a little bit by then and we'd just like get a a beat going and I'd have like a riff that I had, and then we'd just work around like with my stuff, you know. And then and then we did did the he'd come in with a, a demo, and we'd do the same, get it running through there, and and we just we just worked together well, and there was just no pressure. It, it, it was all encouragement, all love, all all really positive stuff, and yeah, it was. It, I just felt like yeah, okay, all right, I, I can I can do music like this. I can do it like this. If if it's positive feeling and it's not making me feel like shit, then I'm game. But if there's any bullshit, I'm out. Fair enough. It sounds as though you're meeting with Luke and working with him in not only one but two bands, one of which involved you directly as a writer being reborn again, mm. that it lifted a huge weight off of your shoulders and opened... You know your perception in terms of what was possible, and, and that's a beautiful thing when you've been searching for what to do. Yeah. When did your brother, for those not in the know, Michael has a twin brother, Jim, who was the drummer of Baddies, and he's involved with Bait. Mm. Jim, Jim got involved um, a little bit, a little bit afterwards, and there, there wasn't, it wasn't for any real reason other than the fact that. I knew that baddies had hurt him as well a lot Hmm. and I was quite I wanted to shield him from from any of that it wasn't I didn't want him involved in it it's just that I thought that you know it was it was difficult when we was away an awful lot for him and there's a few things that I was just like does do I do I want to kind of put him through that again and so I sort of said to him you know do you want to do this or not and he was just like well yeah yeah, I definitely want to play again, like for sure, you know. But the thing is, is that how bait became it was literally it it it, came, it happened organically. It was what I was coming up with from the Pro Tools, from the um, the machine drums, really mm. became a massive part of the sound. So I would do these demos where I'd program some drums. Okay, they haven't got all the fills in and all that, and I'm a really rubbish programmer. Just very basic. But the kind of limitation made made it good. A bit like those bands Wall of Voodoo and all that stuff where you've you've got pretty much one beat that's going through it. The demo sounded like that with me putting like these punky guitars over the top and then doing my vocals. And 
so then to, to get we started doing that within a room and then and then from then on trying to write within a room and that just cast me back to to where I didn't want to be and, I can and imagine I was, so I was just like deja vu city yeah but then as a free piece and me kind of being the sole guitarist and being a little bit like unsure of myself again and, and it kind of made me feel like if I was going to do something for on from baddies it's got to be different I'm not saying it's I'm not saying Bates better than baddies I mean at the moment I'm massively into it I, I think it, I think it sounds cool you know I'm really, really pleased with what we became but what bait was at that time was not what I wanted to do and it was just and I was kidding myself so it was almost like a three like just three piece straight up rock stuff mm. And I was like, no. So we was in a rehearsal room and I'd kind of bought, drafted in a keyboard player at that point, a synths, programming synths, just to, to add atmosphere because I knew it needed something. And we was in a room and I was like, oh. I'd started doing some demos that were a little bit more kind of meaty and a bit sort of different, really kind of like, almost like trippy sounding. And I was like, they really liked him and I was just like, well, we're not going to get that sound right. And then, and then the guy who goes a name of MRE, who is the synth player, programmer, keyboard, whatever. He said, well, look, why don't we go back in? Why don't we do stuff in the studio? Why don't we just, I'll record it and we'll just call it demos. And if we need to redo it, then that's fine. And so we just, we did it there. And it, so bait became, and it's, and it sounded better. Whereas Baddies was, we were always in a room, churning it out, playing until we sounded amazing. Then when I recorded, this was the polar opposite. Right. This was a completely different process. So it was, we go in, we program the beats, we get them right first, and then, and then we just we throw some bass on, we throw some guitar on, and then I'll just walk around doing the vocal, not not even with any cans on, just in front of the speakers just and just prowl around just have a really long lead and just move with it and then and then we had the drums on afterwards so jim has got something that is that he's playing to is, is either a guide and we can either change it to what he's doing or he plays against it so you've almost got like you've got like um you know jim's drumming with a computer it's like a kind of drumming team Bit like Adam and the Ants, but with one robot and one gym, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and and then I was like, "There's something in this. There's something in this that just." And either way, for me, it was totally maverick. So something just different, you know. And and that inspires me, you know. Breaking it down and starting again, weirdly in completely different genre. I remember watching classic albums, you know, that series yeah. and uh, the Who, Who's Next? Yeah, I, I think it was being examined. And Roger Daughtry was going through all the individual tracks. And one interesting fact about The Who is that as soon as the vocals start, the drums got really busy. And not in an offensive way, but similar to what probably Jim was having to deal with. Instead of reacting to time and the click, mental click or otherwise, he was engaging with the vocal parts and yeah. playing around them. And... Even though the fills, if you were to examine them on some of the Who stuff, would sound very, very quirky and out of place, they weirdly anchor what the vocals are doing. And I think Jim has 
probably done a similar thing there, particularly if you have regimented beats happening in between it. So he had to find his space in between the beats. Yeah, and and, and it wasn't easy. I and can there, imagine, there yeah. Were, there were some times where, you know, my reluctance in involving Jim was because I, I think I knew that we had something from the original demos, that machine sound, lo-fi machine sort of sound that we that I had just from the original it, that had something then when we tried to translate it to a band it didn't so we went back to that and Jim and a few times he said I don't think I can do anything and I was like you can you can and there was a couple of like moments where it was like I can't do it I can't, I'm not you know I think we should just leave it's going to just be drum machine and I was like no no you can do it just try and he'd be in there and, and, and we just loop it round and I'd just be like right come on and he'd just try all these kind of like different patterns like with it until until we go, that's it, that's good, right. Now what was that? And then we'd kind of work it out that way. And it was a much more fun and engaging way of of uh, working. And we produced the whole thing ourselves. Everything was, we didn't go in, didn't have to go and spend like 15 grand on, on, on recording an album at Rockfield or wherever, wherever it was, you know, any big studio. This was using what we had what we had access to mm. limitation and i to me it, it was probably i don't know one of the, the most proud or the proudest i could have been of an album just because it was i came out really we done it ourselves and i came out really pleased with the results and you know it involved it involved everyone but in a different way it wasn't just the experience of it wasn't just us in a room trying to work out, you know, the arrangements of the songs. We 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 did we did that, but it was in a different way. It was like in the studio, and so like so you could just hit a button and change that, and then we're going to go and drum to that, but or drum against it, and then, you know, it, it was a maverick way of working for me, for sure. You know, to just take it away from that traditional. Tr traditional thing that I'd done so many times before. I can see that. Also, you had a collective bond in that you were learning how to do this together. Yeah. In the same way that you felt when you were opening your present from your mum. Yeah. Pro Tools is not that intuitive. It's not a, an immediate program to pick up. No. And to be working in a way that's different from the way you normally were doing it with a program that is not intuitive, if there are people listening who are able to pick it up really easily, good on you. And one more thing, <laughs> fuck you. But, but you, you, so you're using Pro Tools for the first time. You're working on material in a, in a different way, deliberately trying to move away from from the baddies world. Yeah, you know, which I completely understand. And then recruiting your your brother, and then your brother's operating more as a percussionist mm. rather than a drummer. Yeah. In terms of, you know, a drummer who keeps time versus somebody that's adding spice and icing yeah. constantly over the, the tunes. And to be doing that in tandem, even though that probably took a lot longer than in your baddies days when you were working out a new song, the discovering sounds like it's part of the pleasure, part of the fun. For sure. And and actually, you know, casting back to build when, when we were doing that, again, that was something different. We we were working outside of our our comfort zone if you like because Jim and Simon when we was in baddies were were learning how to use like logic and and stuff like that and that's where those little kind of 
although they sound quite on their own, they sound probably quite poxy. That they they were they really added something to the sound. It, it, sonically, we sounded like a lot bigger suddenly, and that was fun to like rehearse to set up. And, we, we, and Jim was playing to a backing track, in fact. Um, of stuff that we had programmed ourselves and, and, and that was a challenge as well and you know initially I was at loggerheads with Jim saying we've got to move things forward we've got to change you know we might need you to play to a click and we had a big argument about it and he got really upset and then the next week he said right I've, I've organised it I've worked out how we're going to do it I'm going to buy this equipment I'm going to do that so it was just you know we moved on with that so then it was like well how do we I think really almost what we're now doing with bait is almost what I was yearning for there a little bit is to have if we'd have just had that little bit more knowledge back then but obviously hindsight's a a, a, a good thing you know um it's where working with someone like mre who is an electronica producer produces own music he's got that knowledge in that area that i have not got I know how I want it to sound, but I've got no clue on how to get there. And it's it's that that makes, I think, bait sound a little bit more out there and different. And, and actually quite current, I think, because it, 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 it's turned all those post-punk influences that I love and you love, I know as well, into some... It's repackaged it and made it something that's a little, little bit more... You know, there's, there's even sections of it that sound almost quite grimy in a way absolutely and, and a little bit kind of um it's like hip-hop beats or, or something like that and or, or even like a, a, like clubby like electronica underworld sort of thing as well and but that mixed in with the like the anger and the the power of and the spiky guitars and all that shit it it just i i was very pleased with the results of it you've created your own world mre Yes. Where did you meet him? So basically, yeah, this, this again, casting back to when, from my dark days of when uh, I was working on building sites and stuff like that, um, I decided that I thought I would volunteer to teach music through Luke, actually. Luke Luke sort of introduced me to that. And um, that came from, because I went in and I did a talk one day at the local college, I did a talk when I was in Baddies, went in and, and, and just spoke to the students about what I was doing and, and all that stuff. And I got a big buzz out of it. Um, in a weird way, it's almost like a gig. It's a performance. Yeah. You're fronting it. Yeah. And you're talking about what you love. And, and you're planning it and it's, you know, and anyway, like, I, I thought, you know what? This is a good route for me. I enjoy this. And so I, I pursued um, getting involved with the college. So I volunteered one day a week and I went in. And in the end, I got I, I got a job out of it. I got, I got a job teaching. So that's what I do now. And I met him there. And so I worked with Luke as well. And it all ties in because we were able to use studio space, etc. That that, you know... That was available to us, so we used that, and that, and and I believe everything happens for a reason, and it kind of directed us towards that, and that's how I met him, and that's how, you know, Luke, I believe Luke called me for a reason, and it was to change my life around, 
and he and he's contributed towards that but it's also bringing in elements of the past life if you like such as my brother who's always going to be a massive part of my life anyway and and with such a talent that he's got how could I not include him you know so yeah MRE there and wasn't even sure if it'd even work to be honest it's a wonderful privilege to be in a situation to try it out the not knowing is part of the fun mm. you could go in with musicians who you know want to do kind of a post-punk thing and you know it's going to work you can do that in your sleep yeah it's interesting when you were talking about that one time in an earlier incarnation of bait when you got in just as a three-piece and you knew where it was going and you knew that being there seen it done it the list of ingredients that make up bait quite disparate yeah it, it shouldn't work and that's why it's so great that it does. Yeah. And the material seems very, very personal on yeah. top of that. And the album's an absolute grower. First time when I heard it, I thought, you know, this is different. And I, and I, my initial headspace was, I, I can see why this album has happened. You know, it seems, I just, it just felt so personal to me. And, you know, the, the sounds and the production are, are quite dark and dense in places. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. to the point where it didn't make easy first listening. And, no. and it doesn't. But also, why the fuck should it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, yeah. By the time I had the third listen, I started to be able to make sense of the, the layers and to anticipate where certain parts were coming in. Not that you have to be able to anticipate things, but I was able to make sense of it and to find counter melodies and places and to feel the dynamics uh, as they should be. I knew before I pressed play, this was not going to be baddies. Mm. Baddies Mark Two. Baddies Part 2. Yeah. Revitalised baddies. And <laughs> although there might be brief moments here and there where I can hear tinges of the baddies days in Push the Elephant, mm. there's certain breakdowns which just sound like they could be off of build. Yeah. Push the elephant, push the elephant, push the I hear a darkness and an industrial edge that recalls throbbing gristle, early nine-inch nails, bits of Devo in places, and with a sprinkling of killing joke. But mixing all those elements together doesn't really do it justice. And I don't think necessarily, you know, one has to pigeonhole stuff in order to understand it. But the fact is, I, I felt that I needed to in my own head. Mm. At first listen, I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this. And then by the third and fourth listen, I, I completely got it. I'm loving the album. Oh, and geez. I'm doing Janet Street Porter impressions quite regularly for one <laughs> yeah. thing. Janet Street Porter. Janet Street Porter. Janet Street Porter. Janet Street Porter. I just love the idea that on that, that particular track, you know, I thought, oh, they've done a fade out. I hate fade outs. And then I worked out that the mantra of Janet Street Porter was going to make its presence known. Janet Street Porter. It's an absolute rip-off of, of um, Gang of Four, though, as, as well. I can't remember oh, which track it is. It's off, it's off Entertainment, but it's... Uh, is it that please, please, 
bring me evenings and weekends. Yeah, it cuts out and then and that and I was just like, I fucking love that. I'm gonna do my own version of that. It's fun. <laughs> Please send me evenings and weekends. Please send me evenings and weekends. Janet Street Porter. A bit of an ode to your um, post-punk roots and referencing Gang of Four can only be a, a good thing. Janet Street Porter, obviously quite a, an enigmatic character, somebody who causes a great deal of uh, reaction in people, not particularly a loved figure. No. How do you feel about Janet Street Porter? I think, I think she's a lot of fun. I think that, you know, she she's outspoken. I think that... Um, there is a certain charm to her. I think a, a lot of people fucking hate her. Mm. Um, the reason she person. is uh, featured in that is, is purely by accident. I was just doing a blab track to one of the the tunes, which was did eventually was called Greatest of the Teeth. Um, and within my, I had in mind, you know, have you ever seen the film Little Shop of Horrors? Yes. With um, Steve Martin, and one of my favourite scenes in that is is where he he's he's the dentist, and he's but he's like the kind of he's like the biker dentist, and and, and he's got his leather jacket on, and he, he comes in and he and he knocks the the um, the the woman went out, but he's he's almost it's he's like psychotic kind of dentist, and uh, I I don't know I've always thought I wanted to write a song about that for some reason. <laughs> and so that's one of the more fun tracks that was off there a little bit more like imaginative and as I was kind of I was thinking about things in a dentist and I sort of you know I said like the word you know words pink coloured water and then and then I just said Janet Street Porter like that and then I stopped and I was like oh yeah I'll say that again and then and then and then I'd name the t- title Greatest of the Teeth and it just it just comes from out you don't know where it comes from but it comes from there and, and it's just that, that tune's a little bit of fun actually on uh, one of the lighter sides of the album I think and you also reference some other people who cause similar amounts of uh, divisiveness uh, amongst the, the British public you know like Timmy Mallet gets referenced yeah I mean I actually sent I sent when I after written that I sent that on to Simon from Baddies and, and he he loved it but he said he said um, you know you've got to stop referencing all these people and I was like should you? you reference no. Harry Seacombe on a baddies track yeah, yeah. What, what tune was that? Home along with Harry God, I mean I forgot I even did that I wrote this whole email back to him justifying why I'd used it because that I referenced Timmy Mallet Timmy Mallet in a dark Keith Harris. Keith Harris in an office with a dead owl. In the track I'm Still Here. I'm still here. I'm still here. And it does what it says on the tin. It's don't forget me, I am still here. You know, that whole idea, that that kind of um I don't know, fear of being still doing the same thing over and over and over again, even though there's no audience and no one cares. And that image comes from Keith Harris in an office with a dead owl. He's still there with, is it Orville? You know, but he, he can't, he's lost Orville, so he's got a dead owl with him and he's kind of, you know, trying to, but he's working in an office. 
or Timmy Mallet in a darkened wood with a pair of rabbits. Well, no, playing Mallet's Mallet with a pair of frightened rabbits because no one else cares anymore. That's that's it. It's that insecurity of me coming back and doing something, but no one caring or me carrying on doing the same thing and again no one caring that's why those they're in there and but it comes from my childhood and those are people that I remember from my childhood and yeah maybe you shouldn't put maybe that does show my age I actually don't give a fuck anymore nor should you I don't and there's a lot of people out there that would say oh you shouldn't reveal the age of a band if you're trying to get anywhere and I'm not trying to get fucking I don't want to be top of the world I just want to create music that that is personal to me now and that that I love and I fucking love what I'm doing. I love the sentiment of it. And it's actually, we played a gig for John Kennedy in the Tooting One and he and a, a few people came up to me afterwards and they said, it's a hard listen, you know, as you've said, and it is, it is even live, it's even more in your face. But what they said was that it's the lyrics that they that are pulling them in and that's the first time that anyone's ever really kind of started saying that to me because even though in baddies i don't feel feel i wrote any bad lyrics really but no one ever really said oh it's amazing lyrics that that you're doing you know so i felt as i've i'd grown a little bit in in that are centre stage and I think the, the sinister nature of them makes the, the listener want to, to stand up and open your fucking ears and take notice and, and I think that's a, a good thing and doing that live with all the noises that are you know and a lot of non-standard electronica parts and you've got your strat no doubt on full tilt yeah the strat's still there yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to, to be able to find vocal room with that onslaught is you know a triumph in itself How different is a live show from the recording? Um, well, this is, I mean, this leads on to something I did want to mention, which, so it, that was getting bait together live was something that actually surprisingly came together a lot quicker. And it's mainly because of 
the, the incredible mu- musicianship of like Jim and Luke. Mm. Like, Luke, although he's not a traditional bass player, I think is a very good bass player. I, I love his style of playing, and I think it adds something. It's got this kind of like, like kind of like looseness that's like that you need. It's like this swagger that 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 maybe I wouldn't give. I'm quite a rigid sort of bass player. I move, but you know, he's anyway. We're not going to bear bass player. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, talk about your bass player. You know, yeah, we can <laughs> go for it all. You know, but but it's um. Well, I do love your Rickenbacker actually. Oh, but we'll, we'll talk about that Cheers. another time. Um, but yeah, so that live getting it together, I was like, is this even going to work live? Because a lot of it was built up from machines, and 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 you got to work out what you should and shouldn't play. But it does. It really does. And what Jim has had to do, which he's made it more exciting for him, although he was probably a little bit reluctant initially, is that he's got to work out. He's trying to play two beat patterns at the same time. So there is no no drum machine live. He is the machine. Blimey. So he, he does it all. And he does it really well. So you've got... How we do it is, you know, I'll, I'll let you in on the, uh, the, the magic. Jim bought uh, Trigger's for his for his kick drum and his snare so you've always got two two sounds going on you've got an acoustic sound and a and a, a electronic sound mm. so he's got that kind of it makes it the drums sound huge which is a big part of it's very like almost like a kind of electronic tribal thing that's going on and then he's, but he's also got like an SPDS and if you see any drummers watching festival stuff on telly Glastonbury whatever you'll see most drummers now have these, these it's drum an essential pads. piece of kit, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, um, Particularly that unit, it is the one. But we we started using that when we was in baddies, and so he's he's got like the out of date one, the old the vintage one, if you like. I think there's an SPDS X now, but this is the it SPDS. sounds so much warmer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but essentially, it's a it's a pad that that you can just put whatever sound you want, and so because we've got MRE in the band as well, he produced the album so he's got all the sounds there and then he sort of he hits off certain things so Jim is all drums he does all the drumming MRE does simps and he hits off my there's some vocal samples on there where where there's some sort of weird screaming like, like me doing that in, in the studio and he sort of hits those off as well um and then Luke and me just pretty like we sort of bring the energy and the kind of the the guitar and the bass and 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 I just do vocals on my own. We've just backup sort of with Jim's voice because he's he sounds like me. So I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, they're blood harmonies, aren't they? You know, yeah. apparently it is a thing that where if you families that sing together will sound better than if the others. We're the Naturally. Nolan sisters. Fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly that. You know, so which is why it's perfect for Jim to do that. But I, I, yeah, back to your question. It does. It is different to baddies. I didn't know what to do at first. It's almost a different part of my personality that's that's coming out. It's, I think he's very honest. I think he's very. It's how I felt. There has been a. You can tell that I was angry. When you feel a lot of anger in, in the words, it, it's the delivery, it's the all of it, the mm. chord progressions, the sounds. You'd mentioned grime references earlier, and I think some of that comes from an estuary delivery. Yeah, the worm turns, the wasp's on its back. 
takes another mouthful of mud. Which way next? Up into the beak of the bird? Or down into the darkness of the dirt? Which is spoken, you know, rather than sung. Yeah. Which in the world of grime is quite standard. But you don't seem to be an angry person. No, I mean... Not that you have to be that person all the time. No, it, 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 it's, it's channeled. Um, and it certainly was like during writing that record, you know, each each song has got its own thing. Some of it's just like from imagination. Some of it's from, you know, true experiences. What I what I decided to do was not in, in baddies. I was like, bah, 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 everything was up there. It was it was as as, as loud and as high as I could go without actually screaming. Mm. And I just thought, well, I don't want to do the same thing. It's a very percussive vocal that I was doing there. Very, you know, regimented. It was like all kind of almost rapping in a way, you know. And I just felt vocally that I wanted to, I didn't want to be so one-dimensional. So there are sections where I am almost... I mean, it starts off with me talking like this, mm. you know, one turns, you know, it goes back there and it is just me and I'm telling a story and, 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 but there are sections, the dynamic, the flow of the album, it is very, it does take you more on a journey. I know it's only eight tracks, but it does take you more on a journey as opposed to it, it being so one dimensional. And I think that's important in, in, in music. And, and I think it certainly satisfied me more as, as listening, as listening to it, being a listener, listening back. Um, and it also pushed me, like you know, to be like, yeah, my voice has probably changed a little bit o- over five years. Uh, and if I did just do the same thing, then you know, and I am talking. I, I think I've probably been the most honest I've ever been on this record with with my actual. You know, I do sound quite common. You know, you're in Southend. It's it's. I couldn't be any more honest. You know, like on there, and I just thought, yeah, no bullshit. No. It does what it says on the tin. Yeah, the tin's fucking good. I've just this is a, a weird um, reference back to what you were saying earlier about the fact that in the days of when you were in baddies that people wouldn't uh, reference the lyrics so much. And I have a confession to make. Mm. Battleships was my introduction to you guys, and what an introduction! I have sung that chorus a, a countless times. And I have no idea what the fucking lyrics are. Something about a jet stream. I have no idea what the lyrics are. (laughs) You could be singing about what you're going to be getting at the local Aldi for all I know. And I care about lyrics. So that must tell you something. Yeah, I mean... What are they anyway? Uh, right, so I'll oh, see if I can remember them. <laughs> it's um, it, it's an emergency, right? But because it's phonetically incorrect, probably it's yeah. an emergency. Mm. Yeah, and then it's like sound the sirens so that everyone's up to speed. This this ain't a drill. It's a matter of urgency, <laughs> right? Right, and then it's uh, so let us run it on home. Whoop 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 whoop. The whoop whoops I remember, and that's just a rip off from uh, "Baby, You Can Drive My Car" Beatles. Beep, 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 yeah. 
massively yeah, massive yeah. rip off from yeah. that yeah love it i heard different lyrics in fact i in yours are probably better so this is the thing <laughs> it involved transport and jet streams uh, yeah. trust me yours are better but there you go the fact that you know being sung and when you're playing with timing and can you know phonetics in order to make something fit they're going to be not so much lost but something you feel rather than engage with lyrically with bait that's not the case i can understand each and every word that you're saying and that's the the beauty in it you know it is right up front and i think it was as as well like the the way that because MRE is, is massively into like obviously a lot of electronic music and a lot of hip hop as well, and you know it's all based around the rapper, right? In, mm. in hip hop or the front man or woman or whatever. So you might you got to be able to hear what they're saying. Yeah. It has to be up front and center. And he was very much like it. It needs as a producer, you know, he was like it's got to be the main thing and it's also got to be real and it's not got to be too slaved over it's got to be it's literally and i'm not joking two takes really two takes walking around with a microphone and just getting it because because you're not setting yourself i've got to get this i've got to hit this like note perfect it is like that and it's the same with the guitars and it's the same with the bass and it's the same Maybe the drummer's not so much, but pretty much Jim's not bang on it anyway most of the time. So, it, yeah, it, just having that, fo- that focus there, not worrying too much. And I do think that is the secret to it. We'll probably try and do it all again now and it will just won't work. But, you know. Um, <laughs> Immediacy is a good thing. What comes from your gut, you know, on a first take yeah. is difficult to better often. I mean, I don't know, like when you're writing stuff, mm. if you have the same thing where you've you've come up with, you know, you, you've come up with a killer riff or this really great chord progression or something, and then you, you think, well, what am I going to do vocally to it? So it's most of the time, I, I do find most of the time if, if I come up with a blab track, there's, it's that. It's going to be that most of the time. And then I start to fill it, fill it all in afterwards. But no. I don't know if that's the same for you or... No, it's very similar. I, I don't think it's a standard way of working. I think it's a bit of a quirky way of working. But I I hear you 100% and do a very similar thing. I think it's how you engage with parts and how you feel melody. And, and often, and weirdly, you were saying off pod how you use the notepad on your phone yeah. to put in words and phrases. I do exactly the same thing. And those words and phrases, I could be you know out and about on the street and just hear hear a turn of phrase that someone uses and that becomes a gateway for a melody or an idea or just the... I start thinking about the syllables and how you can work around them. Yeah. So if somebody was to look at my notepad, it would would appear to be a very disjointed, (laughs) weird word salad, but it all makes sense. And when you mentioned that, I felt a real kinship. I... It was. I thought, oh, I'm not alone. I think a lot of creative people do it. I was. I was watching this. I'm a th- huge fan of Kirby Enthusiasm. Um, oh, do not get me started. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for the new series. No, me neither. Oh, you know, I, I'm yes. up to date and I love it. And um, and so I was watching a. Uh, there's not many interviews of him, but I was watching an interview with Larry David mm. like, last night, and and he was saying as well. He he just had ideas and ideas. Just a notebook full of ideas of just scenarios or words or whatever that he used and 
again, I felt a kinship with that, and I thought, like, I think if you're creative, you've got, you know, you're, you're, we're all going to we get older, we're all going to start losing our minds at some point, so our memories aren't going to be so good. So you've got to, you've got to document that that shit down. Absolutely, he's almost like writing a diary. And even if you just, you know, I've you know got loads of voice of voice memos. That's it of of me like humming in bass lines or guitar lines and mm. and lyrics and different bits and pieces as well. And if you listen back, some of it is utter bollocks. I'm I'm sure it is, but you go back to it sometimes when when you need something, as that is just you're li- literally the the gold mm. there just to just to oh yeah it might just some kind of inspiration might happen it becomes a key to a whole bank of ideas that possibly you know were lurking about in your frontal lobe when you first heard them and it, it's interesting that you mentioned larry david because often there'll be a catchphrase in each episode mm. which becomes repeated and quite lyrical yeah. i just watched the left phone call is it episode and there's a scene at the restaurant where the waiter who's been a bit of an asshole refuses to give a doggy bag yeah. to Jeff's wife. And when he reluctantly gives it and gets asked, you know, is this food going to be okay? The waiter says, we shall see. We do not give doggy bags to dogs. Why do you think they call it a goddamn doggy bag, huh? You know what? I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that home. Do you have an animal? No. Does he have an animal? No. So you are going to eat that? Yes. You promise me. Yeah, we shall see. What a fucking nut job. We shall see. We shall see. Yeah. We shall see. And just, I end up repeating those phrases yeah. for the next day. I'm going, we shall see. And I like using these phrases. And again, it's how you integrate with language. The one thing about Kirby Enthusiasm is that, unlike most programmes, the series get better with time. Yeah, for sure. When, when you look so. at the first series now, I still love it. But... It's not a patch on the, the most recent ones, but I think it's I think it's based on the, the characters that he's brought in, or in fact, actually, he must have cast it really well because it's it's an improv show, right? So mm. when they come in, those they're they're given a, a guideline of what they are, fed a few lines, but then given the kind of scenario, and then they go with it, and and I think it's just got better the, the characters they grow like uh, Susie is which is one of my favourites because she's like you fat fuck like just never give there's no ever no any, never any benefit of the doubt he's a cunt and that's it and she's just going <laughs> to say it and she's just but her mouth is so foul and so funny as well fuck you you car wash cunt um, but then when you've got like Leon and, and those guys uh, the black family that come in oh and and then Leon becomes a massive character, and and he's probably my favourite character I out of all of them. I love Leon. Yeah, yeah. The whole in the same, I think it's called Left Call. That's the one where Leon uh, gives some wonderful advice to Larry, who experienced some uh, racism at the <laughs> yeah. clinic. To you know, <laughs> step in that, step in that ass, Larry. He's got you got you got snicker wrappers all over the floor. Yeah. You're gonna put out cigarette butts. You gotta twist that ass up, Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put that. Larry was here. Larry was here. And the amazing advice that once you leave it, you leave that door open. You leave it open. <laughs> Larry was here. Wash me. All that kind of shit. Fuck this whole asshole up. These snicker bars, throw some paper on the floor. Read a newspaper, ball the paper up the newspaper, and throw the newspaper on the floor. Mm-hmm. Fuck this whole asshole up. You know what I'm saying? Then you yeah. open that asshole one more time. Open it again. Open that asshole again. Oh! Step out his ass. And leave that motherfucker wide open so he know you've been there. Open it up. 
Step, Step in. in the asshole. Spray Larry paint. Larry, Larry was, was here. here. Leave garbage. Snickers, eat Snickers. Leave garbage. Spit. Fuck it. Get out. Mm. Open it up again. Yeah, step out the asshole. Step out. Don't even close that motherfucker. Leave it open so he know you've been there. Get in that ass, Larry. Don't worry. All right. In my own way, I've stepped into a number of people's assholes. <laughs> yeah. I've had a Snickers bar. <laughs> so lyrical and so wonderful. I'm so glad you're a fan. It's, Massive um, fan. Huge. Yeah, my curb, favorite. Curb, um, it's not to everyone's taste, but it's to mine, and I absolutely love it. I think, um, you know, you can say it, it, it has similarities to like The Office, but... Where you know you're like, oh, don't say that, don't say that. Mm. But with Larry, because he's so, he's such a, he, he, he's almost like a bit, a bit, a bit softer. I don't know. There's something about him that seems a bit more fun and a bit more kind mm. of quirky. That you're just like, yeah, no, I can totally. That delivery, it, it translate, translates to me a lot better than the office does. Because the office, I think sometimes it's just so. For a start, you've got the music with Kirby Enthusiasm that softens it up. That yes, but like that kind of that sort of music. It's like with a tuba or something like that. That it softens it up, and, and it just to me, I think it's genuinely harmless. And I think a lot of the stuff relate like everyone's thought those ideas a, a lot. Absolutely. When when you know someone parks and they've parked over across two spaces and and shit like that and all these ridiculous things that he comes up with, but everyone's found themselves in those scenarios, but they never fucking say anything. And in a way, I think even Hitler wouldn't seem that evil if the footage you were watching had a tuba in the background. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it certainly softens it up. Your relationship with Luke and the two bands that you share with him, mm. how does he cope with being just the bass player in bait? And is it a similar dynamic to yourself as the bass player in Asylums. It's has it been an easy it's been, adoption? It's been totally like easy and, and like I said earlier, from that first where we first got together and first started playing music together, there was none of this kind of like precious preciousness of, you know, oh, you know, that's mine or or you know, I, I want to be the, the, the singer. That's my song. I you know, it, it was all this just doing it for the love of I think we were just happy that there was two people that just still wanted to play music after all this time really you know because a lot of people would moved into onto the next stage of their lives which is probably uh, at my age having kids and you know getting married and loads of mortgages and all that stuff and I think you can have that and still carry on doing what, Absolutely. what you love for sure you just got to be a little bit more make the time count a little bit more when you're actually doing it but no certainly as I said earlier, it was a little bit weird stepping back and playing bass. But after a while, you kind of... Because when you are playing, you are putting on a show and and you're standing up on stage and it's kind of knowing what to do. And if I was to just sort of suddenly grab the mic and be like, right, yeah, this is this is Asylums from South End, you know, in when he's the singer, it's... No, and, and in the same way... And I love playing bass in, in Asylums, but I also love fronting bait... Luke loves playing bass in, in bait as as well. He's a great frontman, but he's also a great bass player. And we just take the mic down and he just feels as though there's... Because n- that's just not there. Mm. He just he jump, he just jumps around a bit like Chris Novoselic. He can just be a bit more goofy and just kind of do his thing. 
and it and it works and he genuinely you know he said to me i, I really love having that role as well because i, I it is just almost not as, not as much pressure for him to kind of engage the audience as much although he's such an incredible performer you know he he jumps like about two foot in the air every time he jumps or something he's he just springs in his knees from the footage I've seen my word I, I just don't know how he does it But what what there is is this is kind of, I think we felt as though Bait and Assange were so so different initially. But the kind of because we, we've I don't know those pers- those personalities of, of each member they're kind of starting to like come together. Mm. It's like because we've announced that we are doing Bait as well, and it does involve some of the same members. You. It's not like you go on stage and like, oh, I'm I'm Mike from Bait tonight, and and suddenly I'm Mike from Asylums. Initially, it was a bit like that, but now it's, you know, I don't talk really when we do Asylums, but I, my voice comes from from Bait, and his voice is from Asylums, and you and so the personalities they do. He still wears the same sort of clothes. It's not like we're suddenly changing outfits and all that stuff. You sound like you're genuinely supporting each other. That was through the your creative pursuits. And that sounds cheesy, but fuck sounding cheesy. That is what you're doing. And that's a rare thing. It's a rare dynamic that you both share. Juggling two bands. And then the label, which we haven't even had a chance to chat about yet. Well, the whole thing, it it came from, we would start doing, started working together. We weren't even really in two separate bands. It was he, he had his material, I had my material. And he came around one day when we was going to have a jam and he said, look, do you think we should start a label? And I was like, well, I never really thought about it, to be honest. But yeah, I'll do it with you. It's fine. And he'd already like done this logo design and he'd obviously thought it all out in his head and what he wanted to do. And I just said, yeah. And it was kind of a bit, a bit of a like, well, we've both been burnt in the industry. It was a bit like... Fuck you, we do it on our own terms. Mm. We don't need to go and get a record deal. There was never a record deal out for there for us. You know, waiting for them to come to us, we were like, bollocks. Let's just do it in, under our own steam. We'll bring it to them. But we'll bring it to them under under in our own way and we'll kind of, we'll help each other out. Instead of like, which there was, a, I think there was genuinely, and, and especially when I was in Paddy's, certainly from my attitude, was like, fuck everyone else. I want to be the best. And I, I think, looking back, I'm not saying it was wrong that attitude. It's not a very nice attitude to have, but we were baddies, you know. So, but but now, but now, I, I, my attitude is, no, it doesn't need to be like that. In fact, you should champion other music, you should support it, you should all work together. It's a community, and that community spirit has has kind of come from doing the label, come from teaching, as well, having that kind of nurturing approach as opposed to your crap you know I'm not interested everyone's got some kind of talent in them and I think you should embrace it no matter what it is so yeah we started doing the, the label and and then you know initially we released 
we managed to get a distribution deal with Republican Music who have come out of Brighton. And we was only releasing like Asylum stuff. So we sounded a cool thing records Asylums, but you know, everyone knew that it was it's Asylums. It's it's just they're just they've just put a, a name to their, their little label that they've done. They can figure that out. Yeah, they can figure that out and it until was, Yeah, until so then it was the we kept saying to Republican Music that we are serious about doing this as a label and we got some other local acts that we we really like. Um we want to put some stuff out. What's the options? And they and they came up with the idea of doing a like a compilation EP. But it was so it was basically an Asylum's standalone single backed by three other bands. So it was an introduction. So it was it was the way we could say, ah, oh, yes, this is we are a label now. We are releasing other stuff. So and they released it on vinyl. To be fair, we didn't shift loads of them because it was a, a standalone thing. It was a four-track, 12-inch vinyl. Oh, you can take one. Um, but it did mean, ah, oh, yeah, we could introduce, we could introduce like these other acts and, and we officially were mm. a label then. So since then, we released a, a track by a, a girl called Becky Margaret Received loads of play from Steve Lamack. She hasn't even done a gig yet, and she's got an agent. All this stuff because because just sheerly, all this is all off of one track. That's brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah, it's still possible to do that. It's and it, and it's and it, you know we've nurtured her in the way that we would when we're working together at the college, um, and then we released the Bait album as well, uh, and it was just going to be a shotgun release, not not a big. Budget wasn't as high, and I was paying for it out of my own pocket, so it wasn't we wasn't gonna like kind of do that whole eighteen months lead up to an album coming out. It was gonna be three months, a couple of tracks, see what happens, get the album out, you know. And, and, and momentum's still building now. It's not. It's just an ongoing thing that I haven't that. And then we've released recently released a thing by a band called Suspects, and that's two piece Wild Man rock stuff people will say like because it's two piece like raw blood but it's not it's it's got more of kind of it's, it's got a bit of that edgy white stripes but like a bit dirgier and a bit more queens of the stone agey almost oh, right. yeah it's kind of yeah but more dangerous um so diversity is definitely yeah a feature of the label and then yes yeah, so which is that, a good thing and we've got a band called indian queens that we're working with who are wicked and they're kind of like almost as a band but like almost a bit like a trip hop thing like and then we got um we're gonna do another asylums album we're gonna do another bait album we're gonna do more releases from suspects there's a band called the horseheads we're working with who are really cool as well petty phase were a band we're working with as well they were like um they're like x-ray specs bit like that brilliant all girl punk band look amazing you know i can imagine a lot of boys in liking the look of them like dangerous punk looking girls but all like really pretty and you know um yeah just i can imagine a lot of boys being like oh, wow you know bring it much too young for me you know <laughs> so that's great and it's really connecting as as a, as a label you know we are getting a lot of interest from people from the, in the industry's actually coming to us um, and wanting a piece of what we got and it feels good 
it feels good to have set this all up and it's all from just working together instead of just being you know going on your own and, and fuck everyone else absolutely and you're doing it on your own terms mm. and you're giving something back to the the local community of musicians are all of the the acts reasonably local to yeah. south end well yeah we got uh, indian queens are from Leytonstone, and i did meet them through we played together when i was in baddies uh, and they were under a different name um and kind of they've been through a similar scenario and they kind of reinvent themselves and and yeah and and the results are great like the pain has has, has helped you know it is uh, in the same way i feel that it's helped me that, that going through that pain barrier and i think they've produced some really really great stuff and and i'll be really proud to be able to put some stuff out by them um horse heads yeah really cool sort of like just they're from chelmsford they're a little bit kind of quite a bit younger they're sort of about 18 but they're just all like just all about the energy mm. so the east london nearly essex chelmsford essex yeah um and then suspects are from here petty phase are from here becky's from here and everyone else is from here yeah so he's pretty much south end there or thereabouts oh, that's, that's fantastic so the the label identity is a geographical one and you've got distribution on the coast, although further <laughs> further that way, pointing yeah. towards Sussex. I remember when we were chatting post-gig at uh, the Joiners in Southampton, you were talking about your pre-baddies days in which you were playing bass. Mm. Were you doing slightly metally stuff in those days? Or, yeah. Right. Yeah, so we was in a... A band called Engerica. Reading in the feeling in the middle of my eye, got a thing that is burning and there is no reason why. One, two years remember when her face was fat, but her legs were skinny. on the ground then I can't say no cause I don't know how when I was about 19 up until I think we split up in 2006 but we were we were we'd done a lot of touring we had an agent and we were releasing like odd singles here and there and then we, we we got a deal with Sanctuary and at the time they were one of the biggest independent labels in the country and it was all run from by Rod Smallwood who was the uh, Iron Maiden, Maiden manager, yeah, but he run this label as well, and 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 he signed us, and we were like, brilliant, this is going to be great. D went and did the album, you know, it was good, but I think this, by the time we got round to the album, I think a lot of our mojo had kind of gone because we'd sort of was playing a, a lot of a lot of those tracks were we'd had around a long time, and so they, I guess I think the album sounds great. I don't revisit it a lot, 
but it was great, great times with one of you know one, one of my best friends, Dave and Neil, and um, but it was three piece punk mm. metal, but but with like there really well written songs, and Dave wrote those, and, and and I was just sort of playing bass and going crazy on stage and and all that stuff, and and um, yeah, we we released the album, and he said. We we're just about to release the album, and he sort of said, "Oh, if we don't start earning money from it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna enrol on this uni course, this um, open university." Right. And it surprised me, and I was like, "Right, well, either I let that let someone dictate my future, or I get my act together pretty quickly and start learning how to write songs." Which is what I did. So that's when Baddie started. This happened when I was just seven years old. I was it six, I'm not sure if I remember. All I know is that the heavy hand is heavy even now. With the wrists, I take my bones about to break. I'll save the wrists, I take my bones about to break. The heavy hand is heavy even now. Yeah, the heavy hand is heavy even now. The heavy hand is heavy even now. Someone turned the You learned quickly. Yeah, and to be honest, I'd not really written much. I started writing towards the end, and there was a B-side on on one of the Ingerica singles. The single was called Roadkill, and there was this track I wrote called Who Would Be Me, and it's awful. It is the most, you know, it was all done on a four-track. It was, it, you know, I guess in a lo-fi sort of way, it was, you know, it's crap. Like, you know, if, if it ever came on, I'd just be like, oh, no, it's so embarrassing, but... But that was kind of the start for me. And then towards the end, I started writing a bit more. And we did this Queens of the Stone Age kind of like style track. It's mixed between that and the Zootons called Lonely Old Town. And again, it was very feel sorry for myself. Load of old shit, really. Life is painful. Yeah. And and then I started playing some acoustic gigs on my own. Um. And I wrote this track called Amputine and I played it. Nice. And and the lyrics in the chorus was something like <laughs> So awful. <laughs> this is a, such a step back. Lyrical Confessions, a new segment on the Dukey Radio Show featuring Michael Webster. It's, uh, it was I've been trying to squeeze my spots, but I ain't got no arms. I've been waiting for growing pains. But I ain't got no legs. I'm living a life in a chess piece hell or something like that. And I've been trying to squeeze my spots, but I ain't got no arms. And I've been waiting for growing pains, but I ain't got no legs. I've got stumps for arms. I've got stumps for legs. My brain just feels so useless, stuck in this porn-shaped chess piece hell. just it was you know as if they got no arms you know and but i was playing this song at at, um actually a venue which is just up the road called bar lambs they did an open mic night and it's how i started to get confident and 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 i and i was playing and obviously i played that song and then there's some geezer in the crowd that's got no legs the law of averages and i didn't realize that but all my mates were pissing themselves in the audience because they were just like but apparently he liked it so you know, again, that tune was 
I don't know. I, I was not, and I don't even claim to be now, a very good songwriter. I was, I was just learning how, what to do. I didn't know what to do. Again, it was just, it was the same situation that I kind of found myself in after Baddies, really. When Ingerica finished, I was like, what am I going to do? Mm. But I didn't have any ability then. I did on bass, but I wasn't a songwriter. And I was like, well, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And and I just was like, right, well, what am I going to do? So just started demoing stuff, four track every night after work, play, do this. I had a real bad time because I'd split up with a girl at the time and had an awful holiday at Benicassim and got all my stuff nicked. And I'd started a job in a call centre. Oh, and it almost do, took do, that, do, do. <laughs> almost took that misery for me to be like, right, you know what? And I got myself sorted out. I started going to the gym. I got my head right. I started writing. I moved out of my friends. I got this, my life together. And that's when Baddie started to really happen because I'd put the time in and, and, and was literally just devoting my time to like, you know, trying to feel good and doing things that I enjoyed and spend time with myself. And then once baddies started happening. I can understand your gestation as a songwriter and as a vocalist doing, well, especially doing those uh, open mic nights with just you and a guitar. How did Michael Webster, the guitarist, develop? Because you have a really, really distinctive guitar sound and and playing style, and it's really up front on all the recordings that you've done. Um, well, I guess really <laughs> through... Um lack of ability really like genuinely it's i love a lot of post-punk records and one of my favorite guitarists genuinely is andy gill from gang of four, gang of four. absolutely that just the rhythms just the dun, 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 dun. and again um geordie from uh, killing joke A later was a later kind of influence of mine um, but just the, it's the rhythmical side of it vocal I've always been interested in rhythms and drum patterns and stuff like that and so if you can follow that with a with a guitar it's that and it's it's not really anything that's like you know I'm always minor chords most of the time there's not really too much major going on because you're sad yeah because I'm sad but but because it sounds cooler and it's more interesting interesting chord progressions I don't think about what the the name is of the chord that I'm technically supposed to be playing so you're playing non-standard inversions and suspended yeah. chords yeah just whatever sounds right just whatever I think sounds right and what I, what my 
what the limitations of my ability allow me to do. So it is that a lot of the time. And, and, and on record, I'll maybe do a couple of overdubs. There's normally one guitar part's written and there'll be an accompanying part they're written in tandem. So I'll get that down and then I'll go, right, well, what sound good over that? And just experiment with different notes that sound right with that. And then you work it out afterwards. And so it's not really, again, I, so there are some tracks on the bait album where I literally use one finger. And it's, it's very, it's a very lazy way of doing it, but it, it works. That's the most important thing. Chemistry and being appropriate, a lot of guitar players aren't. Mm. So what if you can play a you know a thousand notes at once? Often taste goes out the window. Yeah. And on both of those baddies albums and and bait, all the guitar parts genuinely, you know, fill the, the space the way that they should, and, and sing for the supper or ring for the supper. Yeah. And that's. As a guitar player, that's everything that you want. And also keeping the kind of the energy and the parts interesting throughout a song is is a skill in itself and something that Andy Gill does you know beautifully and you know Geordie and, and two guitar players who, although are highly regarded in some circles, aren't the classic influences. I'm a huge fan, so I think mm. that's why I love your guitar playing, mm. to be honest. Sometimes sometimes all you need is one finger. It's, it's it's attitude, you know, and and it is. I mean, I've met I've met Andy Gill actually. I was um, years ago. Oddly, I pl- I played bass with Gang of Four for this gig that they did with for three. They did three songs, and and he was he he, he did say this. He said he felt as though everybody when that resurgence of in, like UK indie was rock and roll was, was, was coming back that everybody was ripping him off. And I think he was talking about like block party and, and people like that. Future heads, well, future heads who yeah. he produced the first EP. Yeah. For. Mm. And he felt as though he, 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 and I just thought, well, do you know what? Why are you looking at it like that? You know, in hindsight, I look at it and I just think that's a wrong way to look at it. Be proud of the legacy. Bitterness is, is no, exactly. Yeah. Just be like, you know what? People, want to play like you because you are a great guitarist yeah, yeah. not anything else mm. it's not it's not anything else and you know he was he was a really nice guy and i really enjoyed playing with him it's a you know f- fantastic opportunity um i had a bit of a joke with him and stuff and it was good but i've not seen him ever since and that's that you know i mean he has a bit of a reputation no doubt you know the red hot chili peppers story he was involved no. in producing their first album. Really? Yes. They were big fans of Gang of Four, weren't yes. they? Yes. I mean, you can hear Gang of Four in a big way in, in early Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm. And in the days where labels had budgets and budgets enabled producers to be called in, he was flown over to LA and Flea and Anthony Kiedis were very excited to, to have somebody who they held in high regard to be producing them and it was it didn't work out very well and the the relationship was punctuated by the fact that they put a bunch of poo in a bag set it alight and knocked on his door so they didn't get on and some of it may have been an anglo-american cultural clash anglo-american australian to be fair flea's aussie born not a lot of people know that i didn't know that yeah he's yep he's spent a lot of time in australia i mean he only moved to the states as 
maybe an 11 or 12. So he has a lot of good day, mate, in him. He's got a very American accent. Yo, dude! Yeah, I think it's survival. I think probably it's cool being Australian on the first day when you're at uh, the new kid in school. But by day five, you're going to get your ass kicked. So I do think there's some uh, survival survival, uh, techniques that were employed. Uh, Andy Gill had a, a bit of a reputation for being quite morose and dark then. Possibly for the same reason that you'd experienced, where yeah. you know, clearly you can hear a lot of Gang of Four in, in Red Hot Chili Peppers. And quite famously, Gang of Four were not big earners in no, the music industry. No, no. And possibly there's you know, some bitterness from that. But I agree. Bitterness is not a good look or a good feeling. I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. And ultimately, he was probably being remunerated quite nicely by Team Red Hot Chili Peppers at the time. But um, they didn't get on well, and that ended that particular relationship. It's interesting that you've had an experience, and Red Hot Chili Peppers had an experience, and perhaps these were just two moments in his career where he was not at his freshest. I mean, the thing thing is, is that, I don't know, Gang of Four has continued to go... Carry on, sorry. Mm. Not go, but just carry on. And yet he's the only surviving member. And I think that says a lot. I think I think that says that, that he does hold himself in very, very high regard, that he is Gang of Four. And that's what I would never want to do. I'm like, because mm. I, I, I think John King had a massive part of... That I think he's a great oh, vocalist. That's yes. another reference in another baddie song. Actually, thinking mm. about it, which song? Is Block it, it out. Which is was the B side to Battleships. It's a good good tune actually. Mm. It should have been on the album, I think. But I did. I was a bit like, no, I'm not putting B sides on the album. Going to just write loads of new ones. You had the. B-side section in the final gig, didn't you? Yes. And that was my first exposure to it. I was with a dear friend of mine, Welshie, who who was there, and he was kind of telling me, oh, that's the B-side. And that's the first time I heard it. And then it was played to me afterwards, but I didn't didn't hear the the line. Mr. King, super important. He was brilliant. I mean, when, when, when I went to do that session with him, he, I mean, and this is, this goes to show what, what, sort of end up happening you say they didn't make any money but he's got his own he's got his own um i can't remember what business it was but i had to go and rehearse with him in his lunch hour whilst he was a manager of some business in london right and he he sort of came in did a quick vocal thing and then fucked off again um and you know and then obviously they've fallen out since and so them two were the surviving members and that's fair enough they were the main guys you know, the bass player was really important in that band as well. The oh, whole rhythms, the drums, the whole thing. Mm. But you, you just like, let it go. When it's, when it's gone, you, I think you've got to let it go and, and and move on and do other stuff. And just his comments there, what Andy made to me, maybe kind of do hint that there is a little bit of bitterness and there is a little bit of an ego thing going on. But I don't really know the guy to be honest. I think I've got his number in my phone. I've never rung it. You know, and if I did, it'd be a bit weird. He would never remember who I am. Do you know what I mean? Again, maybe he was having a not-so-fresh feeling two times in his life. But um, I've heard a couple of other stories, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Which is a real shame. You're Andy Gill. Be happy with that. I mean, he's... I'd love to wake up and know that I produced that. The main man. But but I think what he's 
maybe it's one of the things that he wishes that he was still producing that and he was still in that time and but you can't you know you can't turn back time you you gotta you gotta keep moving forward if sharks stop swimming they fucking drown is that right mm. yes so they have to keep they have to keep swimming I think I believe there's one variety of shark in which they hibernate um, near the shelf, you know, the ocean shelf, and they're able to survive on the the muck that's floating <laughs> around. So maybe maybe Shit that's shark. what Andy Gill's doing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to find out what shark that is. Shark! 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 Your fellow baddies. Obviously, we know about the whereabouts of Jim. Yeah. What about the rest of the gang? Well, so... Simon and Danny. Danny. So Danny, um, we stayed in touch. He he kind of put his base down. Beautiful base, Rickenbacker, like yours. Mm. But cherry red one. Great bass player. Mm. Of energy, drive, and just... There are very few bass players that make me want to pick up the bass mm. and can play right there and then. He's one of them. The thing is with Danny, he's fucking cool. He yeah. looks cool. Uh, he's a li- he was a little bit older than us, and I think some people were like, "Oh, who's the who's the old guy in the band?" But he looked like Peter Hook from Peter Hook and Peter Sutcliffe <laughs> mixed together, and because um, he had that big black beard, and he just looked, and he was bigger than all of us, and he just looked like this towering figure of bass volcano you know that was just on stage and 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 great and a great laugh as well great comrade to have uh anyway when we split he put his base down took up film photography uh and he's produced some absolutely amazing images he's done a few different few different um kind of pieces if you like or is it is it called a piece or projects one is called like night time i think and he's literally he's shooting he doesn't shoot people but he goes out in the middle of the night it's quite dodgy with his camera and a long coat mm. and he he shoots like really desolate places that so you get you're getting a, an image of a place that you wouldn't normally see you'd normally used to be see people around it or cars there and all this mm. stuff and it's but it looks incredible like what he does and he could probably have a really long exposure as well which you wouldn't be able to do if there's loads of people moving yeah. about so it's going to capture all sorts of subtleties that would be difficult to uh, to get otherwise yeah I mean, he's, he's, he's incredible and and he's kind of he's patient he's a very patient man it because it, it's all film he uses old cameras old nikon cameras he uses old stock film so it's very, very niche, very kind of, you've got to be a real kind of film, like, or c- camera buff, buff or whatever it's called. Was it buff, a boffin? Boffin, something Aficionado. Like. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's keeping it old school and then some. Yeah, he is very old school. And certainly that way of working is, is not broken. And, and, and I think it, it, you know, when you see things shot on film, there is a certain kind of, mm. like, depth that you don't get on on um in digital so he does that and, and anyway so with Danny we, we started collaborating again with it but in a completely different way and I he said look I'd like to do some shots for for bait and I was like yeah 
at the time, we wasn't even going to say who was in the band. We was going to con- con- keep it completely like enigmatic and not mm. even say whether I was in it or who was in it. And so I just basically said to him, let's just do some shots. Let's just do, I don't want to do traditional band shots. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Let's, let's work out some images in our mind, what we think's right. And so he, we collaborated and we, we, we've done, so far we've done four different shoots. One was the album cover, which was the worms in, in, in my hand, which is, which is shot down on South End, so Westcliff Beach. There's another one that we did, which was a press shot of, of, we called that one I'm Still Here. And it was, it was me in the water, almost like, um, supposed to be a crocodile, basically, but I'm not. And it's a bit almost like Apocalypse Now, but it's all done on like um, infrared film. Right. So, and we had to paint my hair white. So it came up in, and he's very arty sort of stuff. You know, it's great, great to collaborate. And he, he's incredible. He does it. You, you only get like 20 shots, 30 shots, where and he, and he does that. We did another one with a, with a smashed iPhone uh, for hate one, uh, hate one another, love your selfie. And that was kind of like where we had to, so we had to get the image of me on the camera, but you, it was obscured by the smashed screen but you could see me slightly, but you, and it was, you know, again, these are just like, and then another idea where, where we were just, we wanted to, we said, right, well, Waspies might be another thing we're going to do. That's off the bait album. And uh, so we got any ideas and we remembered that, you remember the, uh, I don't remember it actually at the time, but I have seen it, the whole, whole Humphrey still in the milk sort of thing. He had that black, red and white straw. Yes, yes. Watch out, watch out. There's a Humphrey about. Mm. So we had an idea that what about if we had like a a whole glass full of dead wasps, but with a like a Humphrey straw coming out the top of it, for no real reason to be honest, <laughs> apart from <laughs> being a, an exercise in achieving something that's very difficult to do. Yeah, and so we did that one as well. Where did you get the wasps? <laughs> Off of Etsy. They're actually Bulgarian bees. Look at the, I'm they, deeply hurt that uh, you, you didn't buy British. Yeah, I, they, I couldn't get them. You know, so you know, even the wasp jobs—they're being taken over so, by the Bulgarian I know, bees. I know. So we we, sp- <laughs> we spoke to some um, pest control people to see if where we could get them, and, and unfortunately, it was just outside wasp season. They they were they were all you know, dead and gone, gone away somewhere. You know, emigrated or whatever it is they do, or mm. just died or whatever. So you wouldn't get them. But if it was a bit later that they started to come back, but anyway, like this, 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 this whole thing is is like just about, you know, bait isn't just about the music; it's about coming up with creative ideas, and it is an art project, I guess, in a way. And it's great to collaborate with Danny through that through his new newfound talent, which he's got. He's an incredibly talented guy, great guitarist, amazing bass player even better photographer in my opinion now and I hope that it just sort of like you know carries on for him um, and Simon Simon a mysterious and decidedly enigmatic character mm. he's the only member of Baddies I I said hello to but never had a chat with and um, always seemed a little bit detached from the band so kind of oozed a, a boy next door charm <laughs> Yeah. With, with a slightly demonic Hitler Youth kind of vibe as well. Absolutely, yeah, he has. He has, actually. That, and, I, can, I can get that Hitler Youth thing, for sure. Simon is the one person I, I haven't really got an opinion of. Well, have you? Do you I, know him? I do. Know, I, do, I think <laughs> I know him. Or maybe I did. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, 
Simon um, is what Simon was in baddies was the record collection. Right. He, he I mean, I, I, I'm into music massively, but he he knows a lot. He loves different genres of music. He's got a great music collection. And the weird thing is, I don't see him that much anymore. And he's a shame, but, you know, people move in different directions and all that stuff. But what we've still got is that if he hears something that he likes, he still just posts it on my Facebook wall or texts it to me. Mm. So we, although we're not like, oh, you know, hey man, how's it going and all that stuff. Through music, we still have a relationship. Um, and he actually, when we was getting baddies together, he was my soundboard. He introduced me to a lot of different music. Yeah, he actually introduced me to Super Furry Animals. I didn't know too much of their stuff, and he was a huge fan. And he bought me the their greatest hits. I think it's called Song Songbook. And had a massive influence on me because I was still learning how to write songs. I'm still learning now, but you know, th- th- they were a band that I just connected with, and I just thought, yeah, these are great. And and it was through him, and and he's still doing that from afar, which is weird, but great as well. In a way. Keeping a relationship through kind of banal communication is is what it is, and he's bypassing that and just engaging with you through musical links. Yeah, um, it's a bit like you know the Transformers films. Not great, but it's the first thing that came <laughs> that comes to mind, where the cars can only communicate with whatever is being broadcast through car stereos, and. <laughs> And he, Simon, does that through musical links. It, it's quite sweet. He feels duty bound to post something on your wall. It means that you're in his thoughts. And yeah. who needs communication when, hey, check out this track by you know, Super Furry Animals? It's crazy. I mean, you know, there is, there is. I've got a massive respect for Simon because of because of that. I, I, you know, really did was almost jealous of his musical knowledge. Um, and he was always, always really, really encouraging. Um, when we were, when we were getting the band together throughout and almost actually, I think Luke replaced him. Right. It's interesting. So that role, yeah, you had a void without somebody with those attributes in it. And then Luke took that uh, baton. And it wasn't to say that the others weren't, um, supportive because they were all like together we, we worked really well together um, but but that was just his role was just to kind of you know just to bat ideas off of you know often if I had an idea I would probably go to to Simon first what do you think get his approval get him on side and then then sort of go go round mm. like, like, like that you know and it, yeah it, it, so it, it was I don't for that reason I don't think baddies would work without him at all. I don't think it would work without I think every member needs to be there. I really do. Absolutely. 100%. You couldn't do an Andy Gill. Yeah. And go out as No. You know, hi. <laughs> Michael Webster's baddies. No, I mean I would refuse to do it because as well like the whole fact we we wore a uniform, you know, we it was it was Throughout, we wore a uniform. And um, that initially came from the fact that me and Jim were twins. 
um, and were dressed in the same clothes when we were kids. And we thought, well, let's fucking use what we've got. You know, we're born as twins, let's be twins or whatever. And then we thought, well, why don't we all wear the same mm. then? And it, was very, and it became very sort of totalitarian, you know, almost Devo-like and craft, the hive, craft, craft work, work, the hives, all that stuff. Maybe it was done, maybe in hindsight, did we need to do it? I think, fuck it, yeah, it worked. You know, at the time, it was cool. Just wouldn't do that. Again, I, I think it's kind of, there's something that's a little bit contrived about it. And I think that, you know, what bait is, he's, he's very, very stripped back and it's almost like I've just taken my fuck, uh, fucking skin off mm. and just been like, this is it. This is what I am. This is what I've, I feel. This is what I've been going through. You know, I even talk about on that album uh, about being a twin, um, which I don't really ever address, to be honest. I don't really sort of talk about that. I mean, you. The, the thing is, is that when you are a twin, you are forced to share when you are a kid. And some people like love that whole thing of that. And but when I was a kid, you know, you'd be bought like a something that you could play together, a, a game, a, a little. We, I remember we bought a little, like very miniature, pool table once. Crap, it was. But that was between us, and it was like, well. Why haven't we got a present age? And that's so ungrateful. But when you're that age, you don't understand that. You're just like, I want my individuality. I want to mm. be me. I, I don't want to be like come as a package. I am myself. And so as soon as we could get out of that, we sort of did for our, our whole teenage years and into early 20s. And so it's kind of ironic that we then went into a band where we wore the same clothes and embraced the whole twin thing and all that. In Paint the City, is it Simon that does the vocal outro in that? Yes, he does. How did that come about? It's really, really effective. It's great having a different voice just at the tail end. And a slightly vulnerable voice at that. What he, the thi- right, this is the thing. When we first started the band, right, so I, those demos I was talking about when I finished in Gerica and I was doing four-track demos, he helped me do them. He was in another band at the time called Fashoda Crisis. And he was the lead singer of that band. Um, anyway, we become closer and closer friends. And and as well as doing Fashoda Crisis and singing in that, he joined what became baddies but he was playing guitar and then I saw it wasn't it wasn't that I was going to sing because I'd never sung in a band we it wasn't later and we in the end it was like well you know I said well I think you should sing some songs and I should sing some songs and stuff and it just worked out that I did it and that he didn't but but I was always a massive fan of his voice he was almost like that kind of he's got that depth to his voice and that croony kind of thing going on that we just didn't use enough in the first album. And um, and the thing is, is that there were certain sections when we were playing, like, playing as a band. I think he just started, he would just start singing at certain points. And I love that about him, that he was just like, he would just come in and do and do stuff. And I was just like, that's what I wanted. Almost like that Super Furry Animals thing where you got like Gruff Reese and I can't remember the other guy's name, is it? Begins with a B. The other guitarist, he sings some songs, he sings some a bit, you know, not quite Lennon and McCartney, but just a bit here and there. There's more personalities coming out. Mm. And what happened was 
we took some influence of that at the end of Paint Your City because he, he just sings and, and it's a great tail off. Then he sings a lot more throughout Build. He's, I think there's sections where he he's singing on his own even at certain at certain bits and you if you listen again i mean i haven't listened to i, I might listen to build actually, it's a really like, good album i might listen to it again. i recommend it this this um i don't know maybe not today but i, I might listen to it you know and, and just have a bit of a recollect because i i think i went through one stage of just listening to it all the time and then i haven't listened to it for years now and i'd like to kind of listen back to those sections what he did because I, I i can't remember but he he's a very very great vocalist and um and that was that was why i wanted him in the band it was because for his vocals really more than anything you know he's a good guitarist as well he's got a very kind of you know almost like hammer-fisted way of playing you know and he used to break strings all the time because he sort of play across the the guitar but it was it was cool because it worked that way and he was just like yeah you know go for it and um yeah I would like to see him again. Rewired. Rewired. Just one thing that I think that, uh, that ties anything that I've been involved in writing with is that there has always been, there's been great times, but there has always been a struggle with it. Mm. And I think it's important to embrace that that struggle that's there because I think it does actually fuel your creativity content wise and your kind of um, ambition to to, want to do it. And I found myself at the bottom of that bucket many, many times, Mm. probably three times now. And, you know, I think I'll always crawl out of it. I think every time I'll always crawl out of it. And, Oh, I said once that I, w- I wouldn't continue doing it all forever, but I think I probably will. If you were to give it up, it would mean that you'd, you would have become a pillock. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on the Dukey Radio Show. Thanks. Well, that is indeed your lot. Michael Webster, what a lovely, lovely guy. And I have to say, in the four hours that we spent together, we laughed, we shared some really intense goings on in our respective lives, and hopefully, in its edited form, all of that goodness and intensity is captured and does our afternoon some justice. You've been listening to our interview with Michael Webster. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. Until next time, may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page Facebook It's easy to find, it will not take an age Facebook 
www.facebook.com forward slash The Dookie Radio Show The Dookie Radio Show The Thin White Dookie is right Click your way to the Dookie Radio Show Facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show Let's see what Slutty Sue is doing in her house In her house Let's see what Slutty Sue is doing in her house In her house Are you done with those mugs? To a mere pedestrian or uninitiated local, Penge may appear to be an unremarkable suburb of London. Neither city nor country, neither posh nor destitute. But in this quiet enclave in the southeastern quarter of our nation's capital is an Art Deco semi-detached house owned and occupied by a North American transplant to Blighty named Slutty Sue. She likes to clean. I popped into Slutty Sue's pristine abode and asked, Slutty Sue, what have you been up to? Recently, Dookie, I've been so busy on all fours, scrubbing away at my oven because it was so filthy. Then I just decided to get a new one, one of those slide and hide ones with a door that disappears when you open up. The engineer who installed it was so polite, showing me how easy it was to pull it out and slide it back in again. So I've mostly been doing lots of cooking lately because my new oven is too clean and like I told the engineer, I prefer it dirty. Bros. Leather. Proclaimers. Glasses. The craze. Evil.